Welcome to your podcast, Leadership is Tricky, where we'll tackle various topics, challenges, and experiences as it relates to your investment in leadership. So, let's design success together. Now your hosts. Hey folks, Eric's here from Leadership is Tricky. Uh, thank you for coming back for another episode um, during this COVID-19 crisis. Um, you know, I know your time is precious um, and limited, but, uh, you know, you chose to be here with us today. Um, to today, we're, we have a special guest. Uh, his name is Dr. Stephen Carter. How you doing, Dr. Stephen? Hey, doing well, Eric. Thank you for having me. Hey, absolutely. Uh, thank you for coming on board with us today. Um, so today we're going to be talking about surviving through crisis. And it's kind of in line with the last few episodes that we had, um, especially the one last week where we talked about leading through crisis. And we had a special guest, uh, Colonel Neil Katad, someone that uh, Stephen and I both know personally. Um, And we've seen him kind of navigate the waters of the COVID-19 response. And uh, we kind of talked about what weighed heavily on his mind. Um, And we had a few other episodes with um, where we discussed kind of, uh, you know, authority and leadership and some of those competencies that you need um, as leaders to get through uh, a crisis like this, although it's uncharted territory. So everything's kind of new. But, um, you know, we brought on Dr. Carter today. Um, to talk about surviving through this crisis, kind of what do you need as a leader um, to help folks feel motivated, inspired, um, and a sense of purpose as they navigate through this time? So, Dr. Carter, so, you know, before we get started, you know, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself um, and uh, then we'll get, we'll get right into the, the topic at hand. Hey, thank you, Eric. I, I appreciate you making a, some time for me. Uh, my doctorate is in business. My focus is strategy and innovation. Um, and the great thing about innovation is it doesn't have to be something that's brand new. It just has to be something that's new to you. So um, I think from that launching point, um, when we start talking about how do we make it, how do we endure uh, during this particular unprecedented time, I will tell you in all honesty, This is something that's easy to understand, but it's hard to practice, especially when we're uh, in a situation where we're in a living in a multi-generational society, uh, not just working in the workplace, but in our usual advocations, our comings and goings every day. But we also have to understand that in that multi-generational set, we have different levels of understanding and how we process what we're actually going through. And, and that's where we go back to easy to understand, but hard to practice. Uh, I think that we all understand that these are challenging times, but when you say that to your five-year-old or to your eight-year-old, it resonates a little differently than it does to, to grandpa and grandma who are 80 years old, mm-hmm. uh, because they're both gonna action that information different. Uh, so with that being said, I think that we really have to focus on the people. As a matter of fact, Dale Carnegie once said that uh, humans are not creatures of logic. They're creatures of emotion. So that means we must understand how to navigate the human dynamic. These are real people in real situations with real feelings that are going through real things. So it's just important that we, as we assign tasks, as we, as we manage tasks, as we manage missions, uh, that we understand at the end of that mission or that task, there is a person there 
this, this carrying some load, this bearing some weight. Um, yeah. So I, I know. So with I, that, Eric. I know one no, of the no, go, you, go ahead. No, one of the things that you said was interesting because I was just talking to my wife about this um, generational things, right? So my wife's grandfather, who's still alive, he is ninety four. I want to say he's ninety three or ninety four. Um, yeah, so he's ninety four because she just called him for his birthday. So one of the things that you know, he had mentioned because he was a POW during the World War Two, um, and uh, he has a lot of um, hidden, buried emotion and. He's a happy-go-lucky guy as well um, at the same time. So he has these two things conflicting. Um, but, you know, talking to him the other day, we were talking about this COVID-19 response. But, you know, he told me that this scared him more than being a POW in World War II. Um, wow. Because he said, you know, there's no enemy to fight. Um, this is something that, you know, there's no one's immune to it. Uh, no one is uh, shielded from it. Um, it could come at any time. It's very random. Um, whereas, you know, he said through war, it was kind of a hey, there was an adversary. Um, you know, then you know, there was a, there was a target to hit at the time. And then, you know, going through being a POW, you know, for him, you know, it was a lot of solitude um, there um, because you were alone with your thoughts as you sat in your cell. Right. So it was it's interesting to to look at the generations because you know on the other side i have my children um when we explain corona to them and why we're inside and um going through this this crisis for them it's you know my daughter even said it today oh i'm happy because daddy's home you know um hey i still get to play and and all these things still get to have fun so it's, it's interesting because they do see things through a different lens um, based on the generation where, you know, I'm kind of stuck in the middle and there's uncertainty in my lifetime. You know, this is the, the, the craziest thing I've ever seen. Um, oh, absolutely. And yeah. So, so yeah, I, 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 that resonated with me when you said that. So, um, yeah. So if you, we want, we can jump right into the, jump right into the topic at hand, you know, surviving through crisis. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause, uh, there are a couple of areas I know I would like to share with you. Um, uh, there, there are generally six P's that we generally like to, uh, to to talk about. You know, that's presence, purpose, people, practices, places, and depersonalization. But I really only want to focus on three because of their interdependencies. And that's purpose, people, and practices. These uh, are very important because of the interdependence. Um when we start talking about people, we're, we're talking about not just people at work. We're talking about family. We're talking about friends. And, uh, and, and I would almost place them into, into two buckets, um, one being allies and one being confidant. Can we say allies? An ally is someone you work with either on a project or at work or if you're a nonprofit with the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts, because this is someone who is going to help you. Uh, to achieve your objective, achieve your goal. They may or may not care about you personally, but they want to see the success of the project or the organization. Now, a confidant is at the other end of the spectrum. This is someone who cares about you. They could probably care less about your project or your task or what you're working on. Uh, for example, like your daughter. She knows you go to work and she knows you do work. Mm -hmm. She could probably care less whether you get it done. 
as long as you come home to her. So for, she would be a confidant. Uh, but an ally will be someone who is at work, who, is, uh, who has a vested interest in, in mutual success. So, and now how the, go ahead. It, it, just to tease that out a little bit, because uh, it's interesting, because there, there's a lot of times where folks share information with with other individuals um, thinking that, you know, they're a trusted partner or a trusted advisor. Um, and one of the things that I, I found is like people at work, to your point, um, you could sit there be working on something and you're sharing um, details about your life. Um, you know, maybe some, maybe some details that you don't really should, you really should not be sharing with them, but you should be sharing with someone who you consider your confidant because in the heat of things that are happening in office politics, et cetera, you know, that ally could use that personal information against you because you're competing against them for something. Right. Too. I think that's a great point. And that's one of the things, one of the caveats I wanted to get to is where a person sits in these two buckets depends on their loyalty. Mm -hmm. For example, you may have a brother that you may think the brother is your confidant, but he really is not because his loyalty is to mom or dad. His loyalty is not really to you. Mm -hmm. So you may tell him something in confidence that, yeah, I'm telling you this, man. I just don't want you to tell mom. But his loyalty is to mom. So now your brother may not be a good confidant no, in that particular but, situation. Because I think there's times where there's something to gain, right? Um, there's something that they could potentially be competing against you for, right? Whether it's resources, whether it's that promotion, whether it's that uh, reputation, recognition, et cetera, um, where they use those things that you probably said in confidence, um, against okay. you, whereas your confidant will use that information to help you to, to see you grow because they don't have anything to gain from the environment that you're in. Absolutely. Remember, that brother may be competing for that attention. Absolutely. He might be competing for that, uh, you know, allowance money. Um, you know, yeah. if I get you in trouble, I might get the car this weekend. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> or the big piece of steak at dinner. You know, it's just, it's, it depends. The loyalties really depend. I don't know. I think yeah, but now, that's, that's daddy's uh, big stake. So, <laughs> yeah, daddy gets the big stake. Hey, until until yeah, and, until and, until the favorite comes home, and how that links directly. And and you know, you actually Gary made a great segue in, in, into purpose. Um, now, the interdependency with purpose goes back to your ambitions and your aspirations. OK, which may or may not be mutual with either your ally or your confidant. So what's interesting about ambitions is ambitions uh, can be characterized as uh, what you have expectations you have for yourself, whereas aspirations may be. Can be characterized by what expectations you have for others. Yeah. So I think the hard part about that, though, um, when you when you really because I'm big on, you know, purpose. And I think society is starting to make that shift into like a more purpose driven economy um, and society um, where people want to get behind a purpose. Even if you're selling a commodity, they want to know what the story is behind it. And most people will jump behind that. Right. Um, but, but when we talk about and you need to help me with this one as well, because sometimes I get um, uh, I think there's always a conflict that's, you know, fighting against each other when 
you talk about your ambition, right? These are your goals, those personal things that you hold dear to you that you want to accomplish. You know, it could be getting a degree um, for yourself, right? It could be that, hey, you know, I want to lose some weight and, you know, I have some com- conflicting um, uh, goals that, that, that go against that. Um, it could be that, you know, I want to get that promotion, um, whatever the case may be. I want to do it for me. Eric. Right. And you want to do it for you, Dr. Carter. You know, I see you sitting there with your Harvard Kennedy executive education blazer today looking sharp. You know, you got your University of Maryland flag in the back looking, 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 looking sharp. Um, but those are probably Mighty kind of you to notice. But, but you know, those are those are things that are probably where your your ambition. Right. Because I know when I went through Harvard, that was what it was. It was a personal goal of mine to one, get accepted, go through the program and, and finish it, you know, um, which took me a couple of years, but you know, I did that. And that was a, a personal ambition um, in, or goal that I had. The aspiration piece is what I struggle with. Um, Cause we say it's, you know, what do we want to do? Aspire to change something in the world, the, the, that external, I want to do something for something, someone else, whether it's my community, get behind a social cause, uh, get behind a nonprofit, you know, get behind some kind of, pandemic, you know, whether it's the Ebola crisis or now with COVID-19. Um, that's what I struggle with is because I kind of see them intertwined. Um, but, but you know, then then you get into some, you know, conversation about your, what are those biggest fears that you have and, you know, aspirations conflict with ambition. And then, so, so, so help me kind of navigate through that. And I know you started talking through that and you separated the two, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, actually, I, I have a great story. Um, I, I grew up, um, I'm just a small town country boy from Atlanta, like Atlanta, Georgia, a um, little small country town. You probably never even heard of it. Um, but I remember growing up, we would always go visit my, my, my cousins, um, uh, Gerald, Gerald and his wife, Marilyn. Uh, and I love to visit Gerald and Marilyn. They, they were just a, a simple family, they had a nice little flower shop, and and they gave birth to a son. R- really nice, uh, w- wonderful child, wonderful child. Um, but growing up, we were all very simple. Everyone confined to this small place in Atlanta, this small sector of Atlanta in the Southwest. But what Gerald did when he grew up, he decided to branch out of that small sector of Atlanta. And he went on to be a lawyer. So everyone thought that, hey, he wanted to be a lawyer because he wanted to do something different from everyone else to achieve his goal in life, to, 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 to do law and get rich. But that's not what he did. What he did was he went to law school uh, to get his degree in law, to come back home to be a social activist, hmm. to better serve uh, his community uh, and to be a voice for the voiceless. And to this day, uh, I see my cousin Gerald, I see him on TV, I see him on the radio, I see his social media presence, I see him with different uh, news personalities, different celebrities. But his ambition was not to be popular and it wasn't to make money. His ambition was to be a voice for the voiceless so that people that look like him and that come from where he comes from, he can be a beacon or a lighthouse for them to achieve and be a voice for them. So um, so when you look at ambition versus aspiration, yes, at some point, they are on the same road. Hmm. But then on that path, they fork. And only you can determine where that fork is. 
Uh, even for me, um, my, my, my narrative, um, my ambition was to, it wasn't even to really go to school. Uh, I went to school because I had a lot of mentors that said, this is what you need to do. And so I did that. So I did it because I thought that was the right thing to do. But the more I did it, I realized that's who I was. Mm -hmm. So and with this education, I began to mentor others to do the same. So now what was an ambition um, for me has now turned into an aspiration to see others. Uh, obtain their education and take their education and do something with it. Don't just uh, get a degree. I mean, it looks great on the wall. I, I will admit it looks nice on the wall, but it looks even better out in society. Got it. Yeah. So I, c I could see that too. Um, Cause when we talk about purpose um, and, and we look at, okay, here are my personal goals. These are the things that I need to have in order to be credible enough, powerful enough, have the resources required to now implement or activate change, um, right, to get after my aspirations, right? Because that's really what it is. Aspirations is to go out and motivate or, or, or mobilize people to get after change, uh, if, if that's what I'm hearing. Because, I mean, your, your, your cousin's story is, is, is amazing. Um, so shout outs to Gerald, because uh, I think that's, that's, that's crucial. You know, one, it's not easy to get through law school. Uh, you know, Absolutely. it's not easy to pass the bar, but to, to bring that back to the community to provide a voice or even motivation. Right. Hey, look at look at look at what I've been able to achieve that you can you you can you also have a pathway to get out of the situation that you're in. Um, but to to go back and be an advocate um, for for the people in this community is admirable. Um, so. You know, one of the things that I, I, I've heard in the past and one of the things that have motivated me the most is this talk of purpose, because I never really gave it much thought until um, I was back at Harvard. I was sitting in a class front row. Right. I, I was placed there. I wasn't, I didn't, you know, put myself there. I wasn't trying to be. An oh, brother, I've been there. <laughs> I've been. I was placed there. It wasn't voluntary. Yeah, but I'm sitting there and, uh, you know, it was just a long day. And another professor comes in. His name is Hugh O'Doherty. He comes in. And uh, he, I remember Hugh. You know, he starts talking and, and I'm sitting there looking at him and, you know, he's he's giving us his class on purpose. It's just another topic on, you know, another day. And I'm tired and uh, might have been right after lunch. So, you know, the, the carbs got me. Um, but, he's you know, he starts talking about his story about him and his him and his sister um, coming up in. Um, he's from Ireland coming up in Ireland and um, they have a caste system when it comes to the education realm. As you get to age eight to 10, they start to place you in a bucket, right? They say, Hey, you know, if you're not, you know, we don't see that potential in you. You're going to go to this lower level education school. Mm -hmm. You know, you have from promise, you're going to go to university track, right? And they separate. One's going to go off to get one of the higher jobs and the other one's going to go off to do some type of trade, Right. And when him and his sister got separated, he realized how brilliant she was and felt like it's unfair that now I'm going to go off and do this thing. She's going to be stuck over here. And, you know, from that point on, she she kind of had a rough life. And then on this side, you know, he went off to, you know, be a professor at Harvard. Um, and he had some other, you know, education things across the way. But he talked about his purpose at the time of of, of making the decision that he wanted to go into education was because of that. 
you know, that moment in time where, th- to your point, things split, you know, for, for him and his sister. And then for him, he had to make a decision. Hey, do I hate education enough because they did that to my sister? Or am I going to go make a difference to make sure that people like my sister don't have to endure this? Right. And his purpose to give back to people, to help them be more educated in the, in the world, to see that disparity and see that uh, unfairness in his eyes. But he left us. And this was at the at the end of the at the end of his his lecture. He left me with a quote because I asked the question was like, OK, well, what happened to your sister one? Um, and then what drove you to to be here today? Um, and he probably he said it in jest. Right. One was to burn the education system down from the inside. But he said it in jest. <laughs> right. But no, he said he said at the end of the day, it clicked for him. He had his aha moment. And he said, you have to live your purpose or you'll always live someone else's purpose. Right. And I will tell you that moment right there was so profound to me that I grabbed my pen, wrote in my little Harvard book, this note. And I had it um, actually put on this little wood um, thing that I have in my office. And I put that quote there, you know, live your purpose. You always live someone else's purpose, which for me, um, because you were just talking about our path was it drove me to do this podcast. Um, It drove me to invest in leadership enough that I changed the way I looked at things at work, um, dealing with people. I wanted to serve the people that were under my care to give them the best, to give them all of me in that moment um, that I had with them, which is a short amount of time. When you look at the grand scheme of things, I work with you for two, three years. You know, that's a that's a small snippet. But I want to have a profound impact on you, just like he had on me in that classroom that day. Um, and for, and it's, it's interesting because we, you know, you talk about it. here are my goals to get there. And now here are my aspirations to now further this work, you know, within my sphere of influence. And, you know, I'm trying to get into more community things. Um, you know, you do a lot of things outside of, of the workplace and in the community yes. and you do things globally. So I'm not there yet. <laughs> right. But, um, and where we have plenty of room for you, brother. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm all in. So we, we can talk about that after this podcast. But um, so, so it's, it's a great point that you bring up because, you know, we've been sitting on these leadership workshops, you and I, uh, you know, recently over the last few months. And I know this discussion came up when we were talking about surviving crisis. You know, they talked about this this 4P model. You, you know, you had mentioned it even before the class, you know, about these things that we need to think about. Um, so. So so now we've talked about people and purpose, right? So so how do we how do we package that up? How do we harness that power? You know, that's an excellent segue. Um, and actually, you beat me to the punch. Oh, sorry. Um, now that we've talked about people and purpose, now that you have both of those, that next interdependency is practices. What practices do you have that sustain the, that that purpose? Um, for example. What practices nurture you? What practices distress you? Hmm. What purpose, what what practices distract you? What practices soothe you? Uh, If you look at many of of some of the greatest unsung leaders, or whether it's a a Steve Jobs or a Jeff Bezos, uh, people who have built multi-million dollar uh, corporations and have brought up uh, countless leaders, they all have very common themes. They all have similar practices. So for us, we must look at what practices nurture you, what 
practices do we sustain? What practices do we jettison? Mm -hmm. What is it about us that we are doing that is sustaining our success or stifling our success? It's our practices. What are we doing? For example, I can't go to the smorgasbord every night and say I want to lose weight. My practices don't match my ambitions mm -hmm. or my aspirations. So um, we have to really look at our practices. If we're going to lead people, but when we come to work, we don't talk to people. That makes for a very precarious position to be in. So, so once again, it gets back to practices. What practices do you have? What practices do I have? What practices does every individual have that is that creates a sustainable environment that sets up an ecosystem uh, for you to meet your ambitions or your aspirations? No, that's man, that's powerful right there. I appreciate that because I think uh, one of the things that and, and, and I'm going to use this as, as an example, right? So. I continuously say, hey, I want to lose weight. Right. I say it all the time. That's my goal. I'm going to I'm going to, you know, buckle down. I'm going to go on this diet. I'm going to start working out, et cetera. But then I always get into this 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 uh, kind of a, like a four column exercise, I would say, where you say, yeah, this is you know, my goal is I'm going to lose some weight. Well, what am I doing or not doing to contribute to me losing weight or not losing weight? You know, what I am doing is I'm eating. Right. What I am doing is being sedentary right in my in my everyday. I'm not as active as I should be. What am I not doing? What I'm not doing is I'm not exercising and, you know, I'm not, you know, eating less. But then there's always this thing in the middle. Right. Is that competing priority. Right. I want to work longer hours because I want to be better at work. I want to be more present and spend more time with my family. Um, et cetera. Right. Because that, that, that list of things that competing, those competing priorities always come into play. But at the end of it, you come up with an assumption, right? In order for me to change, I have to get to the big assumption. The big assumption is, is that I can't work out with my family or I can't, you know, uh, you know, work out before or after work. You know, what are those sacrifices am I willing to make in order to get to that, that first column, that, that goal that I had of, you know, trying to lose weight. So, you know, I've, I've, I've invested in all of the, the weights cause I'm looking at them right now here in my attic. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've got, <laughs> I've got the step, I got the stepper, I've got a TRX system. Let's just say I have gone to the point of, I have everything, but until I change my habits, until I change my lifestyle, I'm not going to get to that goal, but I'm going to have two columns full of excuses of why I can't get, get to it. Right. So to your point, though, until I, you know, take a hard look at my habits um, and and be willing to change. Right. Be willing to invest in that in order to make that an ambition. Right. And ultimately, the aspiration is, is I'm going to live longer for my family. Right. Um, it, you know, nothing's going to change. And I mean, you can apply that vignette to anything. You know, what is that goal that you Absolutely. want? You know, what, what are you doing or not doing to get after it? Um, and then ultimately, uh yeah, what, what, what are those competing priorities that you have in life? And then how much are you willing to sacrifice to get after that assumption that you can't do it? Um, 
I, I didn't want to hijack that segment, but it was extremely powerful. And I started looking no, around. That's great. I started to look around like, man, you got all this equipment in here, man. What's going on? Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, man. So, <laughs> uh, man, yeah, I just wanted to share that. Uh, and I'm pretty sure, <laughs> hey, folks out there that are listening, I'm pretty sure that you can you can attest to there might be a, a goal out there that you want. Right. You might have ambition to get after it. But what are those competing priorities and habits that you have um, that you might have to have some self-awareness and reflection to say, you know what? You're right. I need to make a change Um, because I will tell you there was a point where I wasn't big on education um, until I saw my peers around me succeeding. And I thought to myself, I got to get off my ass and uh, get after it. I need to change my habits. And, uh, you know, there's folks that I talk to all the time where I tell them it takes an hour a day. That's all it takes. An hour. I will tell you, you know what, Eric, I have to share a story with you. Um, I am a, I am, I am a unicorn of, of sorts. Uh, I actually started my education in 1991. We had just come back from a desert storm, desert shield. Mm-hmm. And I decided to take a, a local course on base. I think it was, um, Central Texas or University of Maryland, you know, all the schools are right there on base. And 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 like I said, I had mentors said, hey, you should go to school, you should sign up for these courses. So I just did it because that's what those senior to me said I should be doing. So I've basically been in school from 1991 until until probably recently, until, until about 2017. So what I did was because of uh, so many deployments and, uh, you know, a couple of wars in between, but who's counting? It basically took me from 1991 to 2008 to get my bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, of course, 2008, 2011 to get my MBA. And then and then from there, finished my doctorate in 2017. So that is a long time to be in school. And I will tell you, uh, the good news is I went to school and I graduated with a doctorate debt free. That is the happy, feel good story. But the depressing side of that is to do something for that long, Mm -hmm. you lose sight of why you're doing it. And so my, my larger point is that we can set goals and aspirations for ourselves. And we go through them for so long that we forgot why we even started doing. We, we forget why we, we, we lose the purpose. So what I would like to interject, um, if, if I may, if, if I may, you know, just 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 apply this a 50 cc shot of. Surround yourself with people who are going to support what you're doing, because no matter what you're doing, if you're on the the high school football team, if you're on the, if if you're part of the leadership team at your job, if you're part of the Girl Scout troop and you're the den mother, you're the PTSA president. It doesn't, if you do anything for so long, you lose sight of why you're doing it. And, And oftentimes maybe even who you're doing it for. So you have to keep people around you that keep you focused that keep you grounded, uh, that, that, that pick you up when you fall. Cause you're, you're in inevitably going to stumble and you're going to fall. But what I will tell you is there is no such thing as failure. There is no such thing. Um, 
there's only lessons that you've learned a different way. Mm-hmm. There are ways to learn lessons, either conventional or non-conventional, but there is no such thing as failure. So, so I think you, you make some interesting points too, because we talk about it all the time when it comes to leadership. Um, and most organizations probably um, kind of have the same thing uh, and, and can probably relate to what I'm going to say is that a lot of organizations celebrate longevity because they're keeping a seat warm. Um, you know, folks that might have lost their their way, um, maybe lost their purpose um, and aren't as effective as leaders as they could be or were. Um, And now we're in a space where, especially now, I'm starting to see it more and more now as we're in this crisis, um, individuals that are in positions of authority, but have lost that spark of leadership. Or it's highlighting the fact that they don't have those competencies to lead um, or influence change in the moment. So one of the things that, you know, as you were talking through is surrounding yourself with people. It has to be the right people that you surround yourself with. It has to be people that have those competencies that you do not. That might have the informal authority that you don't have. Might have the formal authority that you don't have. Might have the resources that you don't have, but you have to be self-aware enough as a leader or an individual to say, I am strong in these areas and I have blind spots in others. And I need to fill those blind spots with like-minded people that want to get after the real work that I want to get after or change um, and bring them into the equation because I understand that I have a ceiling on my capacity to be effective. Does it make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And I will tell you, someone just recently shared a um, uh, what, what they're going through. Uh, they, they said they're, they're in an organization. Um, I can't remember if it was profit or not. I can remember which one. But uh, but he was talking about how the, 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 the leadership structure in this particular organization is such that it's the people in authority. Uh, of course, people listen to them because they're in, in positions of authority, but there are a significant number of informal leaders that people just gravitate to, mm-hmm. that, that, that they just follow. Um, and it creates, it creates an interesting dynamic uh, within his organization. Um, and I said, wow, that, that, is, that is actually very interesting. I said, so what is your perspective? What do you see? And he says, I- I'm torn. I'm torn because those in the position are parroting. They're parroting what they hear. But those uh, informal leaders, they're not parroting. They're not only leading by um, by example, but they're saying things and doing things that, that are real, that are relevant, that are relatable. And that's why it's so easy to, to fall in behind them mm-hmm. as opposed to the uh, the, the, the persons, uh, the men and women in the authoritative positions who are merely parroting 
And I said, and, and I, I really thought that was very interesting. And I, I just thought of that um, during our conversation. Um, um, and of course he shall remain nameless for this conversation, but, but I think that's an interesting dynamic and it really speaks to, to, to what you're saying. Um, because leadership is something that involves people. Mm-hmm. It is something that involves caring about people. There, 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 there is people is the nucleus, but, 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 but there are other parts and components around that, that are, we call attributes that, that you have to have as well. Um, it's hard to lead people that you don't speak to. Yes. Uh, so, you know, one of the things though, I think that's just one example, but I think what you're relating to is because if we pull it back to what we were just talking about, we're talking about habits. Um, we're talking about purpose. We're talking about people. Um, we're talking about practices. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you have been, if your practice is to sit in your office all day and not talk to the people, out there, if your practice is not to leverage the informal people around you and understand that these people have more capacity to lead in your organization because of the informal authority, if your practice is to ignore new ideas and innovation around you, if your habits are to shut down creative think, etc., around you. When the time comes where you have to pull it all together, you're going to rely on those habits of shutting all of that out. Right. So, and, and it's going to be hard for you to be able to now energize and motivate and mobilize people around you because you're you don't have the you don't have the, the positive habits required to now lead an organization. Um, and, and and I'll tell you, is. You know, we started off talking about surviving through crisis. I think this crisis has highlighted a lot of habits. <laughs> I would say some positive, unlikely heroes, because there's been some unlikely characters that have stepped up and they are they're killing it. They're coming up with new, innovative ways to, to to work through a distributed workforce, you know, through telework and new capabilities. How do they deploy those rapidly? You know, new processes are, are taking place um, in the midst of this. And it's coming from people that, you know, before this crisis, you, you wouldn't have thought that they had it in them. And it's those. Correct. That, correct. And they, they, they were they were sidelined. Yeah. And those yeah. and those that, you know, we looked at in positions of authority have not stepped into their bigness because they don't have the capacity to do it. And, and it's and it's it's highlighted more and more. And I see it across industries. I see it internally to in the organization that we work at our sister organizations i see that the world is going through a change right now and it's exposing a lot of those things that we're talking about right right now the no clear defined purpose or we lost our purpose and lost our way um you know not enough uh positive habits baked into our day-to-day which has decreased the capacity and put ceilings on certain individuals um and then, and then ultimately, you know, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I'd leave it at that because um, I think I'm now just starting to reiterate a lot of other things. But um, as we get into goals and aspirations um, and we start to define our purpose coming out of this, I think we have to pull all of this together and be real. You know, be real with ourselves. I, I agree. Go ahead. It says we're living in VUCA world, man. This is VUCA world. Um, 
but what I will tell you is that I have been in the technology industry for, for over 30 years now, for over 30 years. And I can tell you that I am highly, highly adaptive. Um, and this is the type of industry that requires people to be highly adaptive. If there's a new tool, hey, let's try it. Uh, if there's a new innovation, hey, let's try it. Uh, but the high level of adaptivity is really focused on what are the goals? What are the mission? What are we trying to do? Mm -hmm. What what unnecessary process are we trying to eliminate? What procedures do we need to refine or redefine? Uh, what policies need to be rewritten? Because this is a highly adaptive environment. We have a uh, in the COVID nineteen we we have an adaptive virus, uh, but sadly we have people that are not adaptive. Everything about this environment we is we are in requires a high level of adaptability and resilience. And where there are people that are hesitant to accept that um, uh, le high level of adaptivity, it is going to further exacerbate the problem. So what I will tell you is, especially in the industry that you and I are in, it, it, re it requires people that are highly adaptive. Um, and and I, I guess my experience in, in 30 years is, is that it's only going to keep changing. And so now to go back to your leadership, I, you really have to have leaders that, that recognize that and that are willing to change and that accept the change and, and realize that the same practices and behaviors and paradigms that we did in the 90s, although they're cool to do now, they're just not as functional uh, and, and it's just not. It doesn't create the level of efficiency that we require in a resource constrained environment where we've got limited funds. We've got limited manpower. We've got limited resources. We have to do things different. And once again, this is going to require that type of leadership that you're uh, that you you and I, we talk about this all the time. This adaptive leadership uh, is what is required during this time and moving forward, because what we have to consider is that. Now that we've made the change and we've adapted to this period, what happens when we come out of the other side of the tunnel? What happens when the when the smoke clears? Do we go back to the way we were doing things back in December of uh, 2019? Or do we adapt new ways that are going to be uh, better aligned for 2021, 2022 moving forward? And that's going to be a question that leadership those who are placed in positions of authority, they're going to have to answer and they're going to have to do like you said, they have to pull from that pool of, of people in the ranks that may have that informal authority and may have that knowledge and expertise to catapult the organization or catapult the team or whatever uh, organizational construct you're in to catapult them forward to meet the future demands. So one of the things that, you know, we, we've talked about and one of the things I can continue to reiterate, though, is like when we talk about this change, right, right now, we're, you know, we're adapting to the, 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 the COVID-19 crisis in which we're in. Um, and we're starting to look at different ways of one, minimizing infrastructure, being more resilient, extending our networks out to those that are that are uh, you know performing work. 
um, and, and looking at, you know, smart investments we need to make moving out of it. Um, I, I don't think that's going to be the issue because I think that we can all say that we have to do these things. You know, if there's someone out there that says, no, we, we, we don't need to adapt. I mean, there, you need to push them aside. But I think we're going to walk out of this and we're going to say these are the things that we have to do. I think the hard part's going to be is that we have to manage now the loss. Um, you know, oh, absolutely. You know, in, in, in when I say loss is like those folks that are that aren't adaptive, that are going to be resistors right out of the gate because now we're changing the way we do business. We have to manage that loss, whether it's going to be the loss of process, loss of function, loss of, um, you know, their everyday expectance of, you know, rituals and, and habits, right? Or the loss of familiarity. Absolutely, right? But, but instead of saying change is what I'm trying to tell people is we need to manage the loss because change is going to come regardless. We're going to change the way we absolutely. do things. Absolutely. But we're going to have to manage that loss as we come out of this. And we have to understand what where, the, where those those points of friction are going to be, where that loss is going to happen. Who do we think is going to have be our biggest resistors? Because five percent of the organization, they're going to be early adopters in whatever we do. We see that today. Absolutely. I, I can count them on, on two That's hands. Roger's theory. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. those five percent are going to go with us as early adopters. And then you're going to have those resistors, maybe five to ten percent of the organization, regardless of where you're at. That are saying, I'm not I'm not going to change. Um, and then you're going to have those folks that are right in the middle. You know, those fence sitters that are going to say, do I go this way or not? Those are the ones we really have to focus on. We really have to manage that loss that they might feel might come with that change. And uh, yeah, that's kind of where I, I see that and make sure that as leaders, we're building a safe environment for them to to thrive in. Right. So as that loss comes, their innovative thoughts are captured. The lessons learned, you know, is unwrapped and unpacked and, and actually teased out. Um, yeah. So I'm 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 excited. Um, you know, I'm excited at, you know, what's to come. I'm excited at the the opportunity to help manage that loss wherever I'm at. Um, I know you are as well. Um, so, uh, you know, with that, though, you know, I want to uh, conclude this you know, this episode, but I want to open it to you for any parting shots, uh, Dr. Carter. Uh, yes. Um, I, I, once again, I would just like to thank you for your time. I would like to thank you for having me uh, and allowing me to share some of uh, some of my thoughts and some of the things I talk to my to my to my academic colleagues uh, and, and some some other uh, senior colleagues that I, I speak with. Um, and what I would like to, to leave you with, Eric, is to just say that although we're, 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 we're in VUCA world, I, I get it, I understand it. The world we live in right now is it's volatile, it's, it's uncertain, it's, it's complex, it's ambiguous. I will say that there is light at the end of the tunnel and where there is light, there is someone there waiting. There is a Sherpa that is waiting there to guide you to the next waypoint. On, on our journey to success. And thank you for your time. No, uh, I, you know, one, I want to thank you for coming on board here with me. I know uh, we've been trying to do this for a little while, but, um, you know, I'd love to have you on anytime that you have a, you know, moment free. I know you've been posting some articles on LinkedIn that have been very beneficial to, to my learning journey. Um, just posted one uh, today, in fact, uh, talking about business intelligence and data driven decisions. So for those of you that, um, have not read it, uh, go to, you know, my LinkedIn page, Eric Ocasio, 
or you can go to LinkedIn, uh, not LinkedIn, but uh, leadershipistricky.com where I'm going to try to post this article. For, um, putting you on the spot, Dr. Carter, if you don't mind. Not a problem. Not a problem. Yeah. Maybe we can bring you on to talk, talk through that. Cause I think as leaders, we need to be making data driven decisions and you can kind of walk us through how do we, uh, we get to that, that, that place, you know, digital transformation is among us. And if you're not, uh, all in, you're going to be left behind. So, um, absolutely. And a big thing I like to promote is evidence over emotions. Absolutely. Um, now, you know, somebody told me not too long ago that emotion, uh, you know, when you look at motion, right emotion is something that pushes us. So uh, emotion might be a good thing to push us towards this digital transformation because you get tired of making bad decisions. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can only hope. Absolutely. But uh, for those of you that uh, this is your first time tuning in, I want to say thank you. Um, you know, uh, you know, Stephen, my co-host, um, you know, he's uh, he's on the mist on the cusp of having his second child. So he's going to take a little bit of a break. Uh, which is uh, I think it's a great break for us, you know, as a uh, podcast platform to take a break um, and call this season one because this is episode 20. And as we come back to uh, season two, we do have a lot of uh, talented um, uh, participants that are going to come on and we're going to work through um, a few series of topics um, where we'll have three episodes per per topic um, with, uh, different folks, but we're going to really, really focus our, our conversations on, on certain topics, whether it's, you know, diversity and inclusion, um, working through, you know, bias and prejudice, um, whether it's, uh, working through change. Um, you know, we still, if we're in the midst of this crisis, still kind of teasing out, um, from other leaders that are out there on how they're handling the crisis and how do they see us coming back out of this? Um, and, uh, many more topics, uh, that have been, uh, you know, provided from our audience. Um, I'm, I'm pleasantly happy to say that we've, uh, reached, um, you know, beyond the 2000, uh, downloads in, um, the last, uh, five months. Um, and Congratulations. we, yeah, and we cracked the top 200 on Apple podcasts. Um, so, and that's in totality, right? Not just a leadership uh, segment, but we cracked the, the, cracked the top 200 and we are still the, now we're the third fastest growing podcast on captivate.fm. Um, so I want to thank um, all of our listeners out there in the 52 countries as of this morning um, that have tuned in, downloaded an episode and have sent comments um, to myself, whether through the website or through um, our various platforms uh, for the podcast. So one of the things that we set off to do uh, this and as I mentioned here was really my purpose and that purpose is to serve and um, invest in leadership. So. Um, for those that uh, are returning, thank you for getting us to where we're at today. Um, Dr. Carter, thank you for coming on board today and contributing to this platform. And for those of you that uh, are listening through leadershipistricky.com, you can also look at our, uh, you can also get to our podcast at any of the major podcast platforms by searching Leadership is Tricky. And with that, um, thank you. And uh, we'll see you guys again next week.